Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with Premier David Eby. His announcement yesterday uh, the province will spend $1.3 million to bring internationally trained nurses into British Columbia. Uh, the government also stepping in to help current nurses get back into the workforce, waive some of their fees to get more nurses on the job. Christina Gower standing by. Have a listen to David Eby here, the Premier, speaking yesterday. For nurses returning to practice, there will be help with the costs of re-entering the workforce. These are nurses who may have taken a break for practice for any number of reasons, and want to come back but are facing financial or other barriers to coming back, we want to support them in coming back to work. This includes application and assessment fee support, along with travel expenses support. Additionally, bursaries of up to $10,000 available for any additional education that those nurses need. Okay, the government putting this money on the line to attract nurses back into the workforce. Will it work? Let's discuss with my guests now, Christina Gower. Christina is a registered psychiatric nurse working in the Lower Mainland. She's an advocate for nursing in BC, and I'm very pleased to welcome Christina back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. Hey, great to be here again. Thanks, Mike. Okay, how bad is the situation out there right now? You're on the front lines of the system, the nursing shortage. We hear about it all the time. How bad is it out there from your perspective? Um, exponentially worse, I think, than anybody knows or expected it to be. Uh, we, we figure we're short between twenty and 25,000 nurses um, right now, and... I think we, we I think that in the in the projections for the labor, um, we knew that we would be this short or almost this short, but nobody took into account the qualitative uh, data regarding that. And um, we didn't think about how our demographics have changed even in the workforce, where our uh, nurses are retiring and we've lost a lot of leadership there. So it's been quite difficult. Do you think this program will help? I mean, do you think there are a lot of nurses out there who have left the workforce? Maybe they've decided to get out of this very high-stress job. And if they hear that David Eby is putting some money on the table to help them transition back in, onto the job, do you think that will attract a lot of nurses back in? Well, I'm not sure what the grand total is that he's put on the table. I, I saw that um, they're expecting about 700 people per year. So that's not enough to match uh, what we're bleeding out. Um so, you know, it, it might help. I, I, I actually put this question to some nurses online last evening, knowing I was coming here. And, and I did hear from a few that were finding it really difficult to get back in because it, it actually cost them about $3,700 uh, to get started again. And, and considering that new nurses are quitting at about 50% of them uh, within two years of starting their career, you know, this is a lot of wow. people that we could affect. So, we, yeah, it's, it's astounding. And, and that, it, that does speak to the lack of leadership that we have um, uh, to support them through their careers. Wow. It's just too much. That many nurses decide to pack it in 
within two years after going through all the all the schooling, all the training? Yeah, it's extremely difficult. You do it's a lifelong learning career. So, so without having somebody there that can, uh, you know, bring you up to speed, have the time even because you're always working short. Um, and help you is it the, the amount of stress on, on a nurse to protect their license, but also especially protect the safety and the welfare of their patients is, is enormous. So it's a great amount of pressure. And, um, you know, we've been let down by our system and, and so have, have the citizens, unfortunately. You mentioned the importance of having that kind of institutional on-the-job knowledge that comes with years of experience in the system. And when you have nurses who are leaving the system, maybe retiring early, deciding to do something else, get away from the stress, you kind of lose those those senior mentors, right? Like, what kind of impact does that have? It's massive. Um, you know, like I mentioned, that we're working short all the time, so it's already a stressful situation. And, and to add to that, we're being moved to um, units to, you know, prop up staffing in certain areas as needed, even to other hospitals um, or facilities. So you're walking in blind to a place you haven't been oriented, and, you know, you have some senior nurses, if you're lucky, um, but they're already working short and they're burnt out because this is happening on the regular. So trying to find the support that you need. It's just, it's hard on both sides, the, people, the senior um, uh, staff, as well as people that are trying to, you know, pitch in or being forced to, <laughs> to move about and try and patch things up. Um, we're just, we're bleeding out of uh, everywhere you can see. So uh, it's very difficult and very hard on the morale. Um, and also it's, it's just exponentially increasing the rate of attrition. So, um, you know, we look at, uh, uh, we look at people, I think there's solutions out there, like, you know, but yeah. we'd like to talk to our, our um, minister, and, and unfortunately, he has not been available. We, you know, thousands of nurses have tried to contact him about some ideas um, that can be put into uh, effect right now, and, and we just don't get his attention. So. Well, okay, that's very interesting to hear. Let's talk about some of those ideas mm -hmm. that you would like to put on the table with the government. Like, what could be done quickly right now to improve the situation, do you think? Well, I think that, I think that, Given what I've just said, you know, we need to attract our, our retirees back. Um, you know, if we're, if we're supplementing people to come back into the workforce, that's great. I don't know what the total amount is, but we need to also in, in incentivize leadership. We ought, maybe if we offer premiums for people to come in, or if you're going to talk to the feds about getting more money for healthcare, here's something you can put down that is, is actually um, what might work is look, we, we'd like to supplement their income. Their pensions, you know, offer them an extra couple hundred dollars a month of pension to come back for another two years to help us patch the gap. Or, you know, there's a variety of things that can help with that. Um, and the other thing is uh, we need to bridge our LPNs. Um, we, we need, I know that that is starting to be addressed, but helping them uh, get trained um, into the RN positions as well so we can um, put, uh, we have just more versatility. Um, L LP LPN is a licensed practical nurse, right? Yes, yeah. Right, and we so have, you we think... We four different types of nurses in BC, so... Right, so you think LPNs could be transitioned into registered nurse oh, profession? Yeah. They've started some extra seats for bridging, but the prerequisites to get in there, there's a wait list, there's a wait list to get into the bridging program. So, of course, we need more seats. But personally, I think we need to retool the entire education system for nurses and streamline mm. it so that we can be um, training on the job, uh, you know, have, have the education come to us because we're needed on the floor right now. We can't be taking those LPNs out and putting them all in schooling at once because we'll have even more of a problem, right? And it's snowballs.
Speaking to registered nurse Christina Gower about the government's effort here to get more nurses on the job, let's listen to another clip of Premier David Eby speaking yesterday. Here he is talking about getting more internationally trained nurses on the job in BC. Let's have a listen. For internationally trained nurses, we've committed $1.3 million to set up a new pathway to streamline the licensing process. This will help our partners, the BC College of Nurses and Midwives, and the Nursing Community Assessment Service assess more applications faster. Okay, do you think that will help, like 1.3 million in the bigger scheme of things, given the the need that we have right now, um, will that make a big difference? I had to shake my head when I heard we're putting $19 billion into fighter jets, <laughs> and this is what we're doing for, you know, our, our province's health care. I mean, uh, different funding, but still the idea that, no, it's not enough. Um, uh, without without looking at our systems and how we can improve them, it, you know, just injecting a small amount of money is not going to fix the problem. We have to get more creative than that. Uh, you know, I look at the um, building expansions that have gone on under this ministry. We have other urgent care clinics and we're building a brand new hospital in Surrey, which is great uh, for the future, maybe if we can ever catch up with staffing. But it actually will thin out the herd. You know, it actually it makes mm. people move uh, and transition out of current workforces and then everybody is more stressed i I would like to see um a look at that and you know i i personally you know if i could get my wish list it would be to make uh, the south story hospital a training center um Mm. with uh maybe lower acuity um patients uh and uh have on the job training you mentioned to me yesterday christina that you've heard from a lot of nurses who apply for jobs and then what, don't hear back, or they get swallowed up in some sort of red tape or bureaucracy? What's going on there? Well, I, I can't speak for um, HR um, in our various health authorities, but, um, you know, it's, it, I can point out that we're saving about $2 billion a year of labor off of the nurses' backs by not hiring them. And, you know, it's pretty hard um, to, to understand why uh, scores of nurses um, report uh, applying for jobs and talking to managers, and they just can't get their foot in the door. And, uh, you know, we, we also see um, staffing crises in uh, other positions. I mean, maybe there's a staffing crisis in HR. Certainly there is in our staffing uh, office. You know, the, the nurses every day um, are forced to not just do patient care, but we're forced to try and staff shifts because, and, and you know, we even... Um, you know, incentivize each other by, hey, I'll buy you dinner if you come work with me tonight. Or, you know, if you ever <laughs> need a, a trade, I'll do it. You know, we, we just beg each other to come in um, and work on days off because we're, we don't want to be in that position where we're unsafe. So there, there's okay. a lot of, um, you know, unicorns, we're short unicorns, we're short housekeepers, you know. So we're doing all that. We, we always pick up the slack and we, we should be propping up those jobs too. Christina, thank you for your time and your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. No way. Thank you so much for letting me speak. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. All right, here we go with our panel discussion now on the F-35 fighter jet. Canada sealing the deal here now to purchase 88 of these high-tech, high-speed stealth fighter jets. $19 billion is the price tag 
Is this a good use of your money? We've got an awesome panel standing by to discuss this here, both sides of it for you. First, let's have a listen to Federal Defense Minister Anita Anand speaking yesterday. The F-35 is a modern, reliable, and agile fighter aircraft used by our closest allies in missions across the globe. It is the most advanced fighter on the market, and it is the right aircraft for our country. The F-35 provides pilots with enhanced intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities, greatly improving their situational awareness and survivability in today's high-threat operational environment. All right, that's the Defence Minister yesterday making it official on Canada's purchase of the F-35 fighter jet. All right, let's discuss it for you now, both sides of it for you. We're going to have a good, respectful conversation here. David Creighton, national political columnist for the Western Standard. He's a former public affairs officer of the Canadian Armed Forces. David, thank you for coming on. My pleasure to be here, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing it. Tamara Lawrence on the line. Tamara is a peace activist, Canadian voice of women for peace. Tamara works with the group No Fighter Jets. Tamara, thank you for coming on once again. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, thank you to both of you. David Creighton, let me go to you first. This is a purchase that you've been calling for for a while. Tell me your thoughts on the announcement. Well, I'm very happy, uh, and I really didn't care whether it was a conservative or a liberal government that made this announcement, because this is about national defense, which should be above politics, and it should be a nonpartisan issue in this country. I was very impressed with uh, Minister Anand's comments yesterday. In fact, I remarked in my column, it looked like she ripped them right out of the old talking points that I wrote for Air Force Public Affairs. And she's, she's dead on in saying that the Air Force deserves the best. We have one of the best Air Forces in the world. We have the first largest coastline in the world. We're a huge country. We need the F-35. And we need it for interoperability. And I, I haven't heard liberals talk this way about defense since Louis Saint Laurent was prime minister. Not that I was around for Louis, but liberals haven't been this strong in defense in decades. Okay. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no de- there's no debate here. This okay. this was a non-political decision finally taken by the Trudeau government after dithering and dithering like other governments did, as conservative governments dithered on this issue as well. Stephen Harper had a chance okay. to buy this, and he dithered. But I'm very grateful the government has made the right decision. Okay, I know you'll get a debate from our other guest, Tamara Lawrence from No Fighter Jets. Tamara, your thoughts? Well, we in the No Fighter Jets Coalition are very disappointed with the announcement yesterday. Uh, We know that the Minister of National Defense, Anita Anand, was dishonest in her announcement and her remarks when she said that the plane is reliable and affordable. Even the U.S. House Armed Services Committee in their latest hearing a few months ago on the F-35 said that it was Um, unreliable, and it was unaffordable. There are hundreds of open deficiencies. There are supply chain problems. There are production delays. There are um, serious cost overruns. This is a really bad investment for Canadians. The plane is a very poor performance, and it is not only the wrong aircraft for Canada, but even the Americans think that it is the wrong aircraft for for the United States. In fact, the U.S. House Armed Services 
committee called the F-35 program a debacle. So Canadians need to uh, have a more serious uh, discussion about this new war plane that they're investing in because it's uh, a really bad investment for taxpayers and for our future uh, for security. David Creighton, what do you say to well, that? I'm sorry to, inform, I'm sorry to inform our peace activist guests, but the debate is over. Uh, and it should have been the over years ago because it's simply too late to do anything else at this point. And it's ironic to me that Justin Trudeau has done exactly what his father had to do in 1982. 41 years ago, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, as prime minister, decided to buy the F-18. Now, if that doesn't tell you how old the F-18 is, nothing else will. But it is time to buy the F-18 and to suggest the Americans are not invested in this is ludicrous. The United States Air Force, United States Navy, and Marines are all flying this aircraft, as are the United Kingdom Royal Air Force and the Royal Australian Air Force. These are all our key allies, and interoperability is, is what we need. Canada is also a member of NORAD, and most NORAD countries are flying this aircraft, and we're also a member of NATO, and NATO is part of our commitment. And to say that we don't want jet aircraft is, is not only naive, it's, it's not even an argument, because it's like saying we don't need a National Defense Department. Canada needs a credible defense. And 88, F, uh, 88 C, F-35s are not going to make that much of a difference in the world the order of things. Okay, Tamara, go ahead. The F-35 is not a credible uh, is not a credible weapon system for defense. Are, are you in aviation? South Korea, South, South Korea, South Korea, and Israel just grounded their fleet because of mechanical failures. When you, well, when I didn't you, realize you, I was talking to an aerospace engineer. But this is okay, the usual talk you get from the far left on this issue. They know nothing about um, aviation or aircraft. Actually, Every okay. aircraft has deficiencies. Mike, Every okay. aircraft that Canada has purchased over the last 50 years has had deficiencies. And okay. it suggests that all of these countries, all of these air forces, are somehow part of this grand conspiracy to buy this aircraft is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, David, let's give Tamara a chance here. Remember what I said at the start here. We're going to have a, a respectful discussion here. Okay, Tamara, please go ahead. Last year, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, office which oversees the F-35 program, um, uh, in, in an independent way, released two reports that showed that there are, you know, serious deficiencies with the aircraft. In fact, they're producing planes right now without the Pratt & Whitney uh, engine because the engine is so poor and unreliable. Uh, the, 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 there are serious delays, as I said, on dealing with these with these technical flaws of of the plane that makes it unreliable, and it's not a good plane for the Arctic. It has a very limited range of about. 2200 kilometers you know from cold lake to equilute this is just this is a really uh, poor range for a fighter aircraft um and um and and i would encourage your uh, western standard guests to listen to the latest hearing from the u.s house armed service committee they said that that 
every aspect of this plane is problematic and they are okay. talking about pulling the plug and the other are allies like South Korea um, uh, Israel for instance they have just recently ground ground their fleet because of the technical problems and in fact an F-35 just last week crashed in, crashed in Texas and the US government itself grounded the fleet in okay. order to uh, in order to deal with these chronic problems of the plane so it's not reliable and then the affordability issue is really important okay david let me let me give david a turn here go ahead david i would suggest that no plane would be good enough for my friend the peace activist because he doesn't believe the air force should be flying any fighter jets which of course is an argument not even worth refuting but the point is this is a plane that is flown by all of our major allies and to suggest that they've all been duped somehow is is a conspiratorial theory, which I just have to condemn to the wastebasket. I am looking at this as one of the first examples we've had in decades of of a unison political decision of people coming together and all of us agreeing on this. There are those on the fringe, yes, who suggest there shouldn't be a military, who suggest the Air Force shouldn't have even fighter jets, let alone the best fighter jets, and they're coming up with spurious arguments. To declare that. But I'm very happy to see that the liberals, the conservatives, and the NDP are all on side on this. I don't know how the block stands, but I'm sure the block isn't going to squawk because a lot of these plans are going to Bagotville, Quebec. Okay. So this has been a decision that I, I have to applaud because defense in this country has to be a nonpartisan issue like it is in Australia, like it is in the UK. And like it is in the United States, mainly. Yes, okay. we're hearing some people in the United States criticize this aircraft. They criticize the F-18 and its various variants. They, they have criticized jet aircraft going back for 50 years now. So this is nothing new. And anyone who suggests you can't buy an aircraft because it has technical deficiencies at times doesn't understand aerospace engineering okay. or the aviation industry. Okay, Tamara, real quick, and then we fit in a break here. Go ahead. Okay, well, on the issue of affordability, the price tag for these seven, um, for these 16, in the first tranche of the F-35, 16 planes for $7 billion, that's about $450 million per plane. And then we're going to be buying, you know, uh, a total of 88 planes for a price tag of of $19 billion. But the defense minister finally admitted in her announcement yesterday that the life cycle costs are going to be uh, upwards of $70 billion. And the parliamentary budget office is going to be doing a study on the fiscal risks of this plane, because in the United States that they, they have seen that the operation and maintenance costs of these fighter jets are unsustainable and a serious threat um, uh, a serious threat to the, the the budget of the military because they're so un, they're, they're they're so okay. unaffordable right now. So Thank Canadians you, Tamara. really me... need to confront this issue. All right, welcome back as we continue debating the F thirty five fighter jet purchase. Both sides of it for you, David Crade and Tamara Lawrence are my guests. Lots of calls. Dev on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Here's what I want to say. Okay, at the end of the day, the U.S is our security blanket. So I'd like to play soldier. I remember in the university, we had some admiral come in and tell us we needed submarines, we needed this, we needed that. You know what? It's a waste of money. We are completely irrelevant, and I'm really sorry to your guest who's advocating for it because, uh, you know, he doesn't like to hear that. But that's reality. If something happens, the U.S. 
is going to be our security blanket. Okay, David Creighton, what do you say to him? That's a ri- ridiculous argument. This this person obviously wants to abrogate our sovereignty as as a country. We are the biggest ally, ally, that's spelled A-L-L-Y, of the United States. We are not a vassal of the United States. We cooperate militarily with the United States through NORAD and through NATO. And to suggest the United States is going to come to our rescue if we don't pull our own weight is not just absurd, it's lazy. Tamara, what do you say to that? Well, I do think that Canada is a vassal state to the United States. We get our marching orders from Washington. Um, The United States dominates NATO. The United States has a military budget of $858 billion now. It it dictates... you know, what NORA does and what NATO does. And we need to think about why we're in these military alliances when we're turning over so, so much of our, of our tax dollars over to the United States. Really, this F-35 purchase enriches the, 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 the biggest U.S. weapons manufacturer, Lockheed Martin. And um, mm. Canadians really need to think about that. We could be investing instead in, in what really brings security to Canadians, affordable housing, public transit, climate action, health care, education. We need to redefine what security is for Canadians. And, and the United States is... Is, is impoverishing itself with its military budget and with its militarism. And it's losing its reputation from all okay. of its wars around the world. We need to get out of the ambit of the United States, and we need to have real sovereignty and independence in our foreign policy and in our defense procurement. David, what do you say to that? Well, once again, this was, this was an argument suggesting Canada is not a sovereign nation. How we become and maintain being a sovereign nation is by having a credible defense force. Can we defend our borders? And for anyone to suggest that, once again, the United States is controlling NATO, is controlling Iran, doesn't understand the partnership we have with the United States as as our defense ally. Now, there might be a debate as to what NATO should be today. And I might actually agree with some of the points my friend on the peace activist might have to say about that. But in terms of maintaining Canadian sovereignty and in terms of having a credible military and specifically a credible air force, we need state-of-the-art fighter technology as soon as possible, and we need to be interoperable with our chief allies. Okay, Dave, Dave, we've just got two minutes left here, sadly. David, uh, Tamara's point earlier about whether these jets are capable of defending our sovereignty in the Canadian Arctic, I know this has been a, a high priority and, and a key point. Can these jets do that? Can we defend the Arctic here with these jets? These jets are being routinely used in Norway, as Minister Anand pointed out yesterday, which I found quite quite interesting, because she was anticipating that argument. That's, that is a failed argument that is always being raised that somehow these jets can't fly in cold weather. They're being used in Norway right now, where the climate is exactly like Canada's, and they're being very effective in Norway, Norway as a member of NATO. Okay, so Tamara. This is not an argument. Tamara, you got 30 Mike, seconds here. You get the last word. Go ahead. The, the F-35s are not good for the Arctic. They've only got one engine, uh, which makes them uh, very, uh, uh, you know, very... Uh, um, 
unreliable and um and they're there it's a poor performing engine this pratt and whitney whitney engine and we have to remember that the arctic is the fastest warming plant uh, uh, region on the planet we're facing catastrophic climate change fighter jets um, exacerbate the climate emergency we need to demilitarize we need to decarbonize we need to invest in peace building and diplomacy that would be cheaper okay. and much more reliable All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk vaping now. Are you a vapor? Get set to pay more for your vape products here now. Canadian excise tax as of January 1st in full effect. It means that vape products sold in Canada will have to display a required excise stamp and it will cost more money for your vape products. Is this a wise public policy direction? Should we be looking at vapes as a way to transition people off of tobacco? Tobacco. You know, I often think about this in my own family. I lost both my parents to smoking. My Both my parents were pretty heavy smokers. Uh, my dad died of lung cancer, and my mom died after a really brutal stroke. Our doctors told it was related to smoking. I sometimes think, if, boy, if I could go back in a time machine, maybe I could get them to switch over to vaping, and they might have lived longer, healthier lives. But then you think on the other side of the coin, youth vaping. And sometimes I see young people taking up vaping. That's not a good thing in my mind. Let's discuss all this now with my guest, Maria Papayawanu. Maria is with Rights for Vapors. She's an activist and advocate for vaping, especially as a a tobacco harm reduction tool. Maria, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you. Sorry, you threw me off. You got my name down perfectly. How about that? You see, I did my homework here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thank you. you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, So let let me ask you about Rights for Vapors. What do you guys do over there? It's a movement. It is a movement that started about fighting for fair access for vaping products so people who do smoke can have access and choice to a less harmful option. And it has evolved and we've become more of a platform of education, empowerment, and looking at people who have made the switch or people like yourself who support it for adult smokers to be able to speak up and out, engage with government. So when regulations do happen, that the voice of the end user, the voice of the Canadian, the voice of the resident of BC or any other province has input on how things are regulated. So we find that perfect balance. I mean, I think there's a perfect balance. There's always a a dispute and a debate over this when it comes to smoking or vaping in Canada, but I I don't think that there's any dispute that vaping is safer than smoking cigarettes and combustible tobacco, as it's called, correct? Um, Well, recently, Health Canada released some statistics, and it seems that only 17% of adults in Canada realize that vaping is a safer option than smoking. Mm. So there is a lot of work that we have to do. There is a lot of stigma associated with people who smoke. There's fear. Um, and we are creating regulations right across this province, uh, right across this country, including in BC, that are carbon copies of tobacco regulations. So what I think is really important is that 
when you look at a province like BC, they created a legislation, e-substance, which is fabulous. They didn't associate it with tobacco products, but then they turned around and regulated it almost the same as they would a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. And what has happened, and I've gotten some photos, I don't live in BC, but I have a lot of friends who are out there and it's a beautiful province. Um, I've gotten some, the black market there has increased. And when you look at statistics, most youth uh, get their vaping products from social sources. Yeah, I mean, so this is friends. this is the thing. Like when I've talked to BC's health minister, Adrian Dix, about this issue, and we've talked about the regulatory regime they brought in here, the concern is youth vaping. I mean, it's one thing to, for someone to transition off of cigarettes and smoking to vaping as a way to improve their health, which I think is a good thing. But we don't want to see young kids taking up vaping in in the first place. Let me play a clip here for you, Maria, and get your thoughts. So this is Dr. Don Sin, who's a respirologist. He's a respirologist at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, and he thinks it's important to keep kids off of vapes. Here's what he had to say. I think this is what the the medical community has been clamoring for in uh, raising taxes, ensuring that vaping is not uh, exposed to our young people under the age of 19, and uh, really limiting access. I think this is critically important. What do you think of that? Like the idea that we want to keep kids off of vapes. Go ahead. We actually, absolutely. I can't, I personally hear at Rights for Vapors and myself, I am not in the business of having kids vape. Let's look at the consequences when we create prohibitive regulations that open up a market for for black market. If we are creating this product and looking at it as a tobacco product and using the same regulations, we are missing opportunities to understand that e-liquid can be made by anyone everywhere. All the ingredients are consumer and pharma-grade ingredients. That is why we are seeing little stickers on the same places where a regulated vape shop or a regulated vaping company cannot advertise. You see stickers on your bus shelters in Vancouver that are promoting access and sales of vaping products through Snapchat. Oh, wow. So what I would like to say is that perhaps if they took a moment and paused and said, okay, well, no one's really going to go grow some tobacco. They never had to worry about this. No one's going to open up a tobacco farm in their backyard, um, grow the tobacco, dry the tobacco, and make cigarettes. But they could simply go buy some vegetable glycerin, propylene glycol, some nicotine, and flavorings. And that's the scary part is if they buy the wrong flavorings, you all of a sudden create an unsafe black market. So my concern is let's regulate this product as the pro- what the product is, not rubber stamp it and copy and paste it. And I think, and this is sad to say, but it's like, oh, well, we've done our best. We can't control the black market. Well, you could have controlled the black market if you figured out how that product was created, how it was made, who it was made for, and found a balanced way of communicating it and included the needs of everybody the needs of not ensuring that youth access this product and ensuring that people who smoke right. um, have access to it. And we have, we're afraid about the normalization. How about we normalize this as something that old people do? I'm one of those old people. I'm, I turned 50 last year, so I'm going to consider myself an old person. 
you know what? It's old folks who vape. It's not about youth. And would you oh, would oh, you oh. there would you therefore say that when governments raise taxes on vape products, when they bring in strict regulations about where vape products can be sold, that you have a, a you know an unintended consequence of that of sort of uh, fueling the underground market, fueling the black market for vapes. Absolutely. And I think, and, and it's not intentional. And I'm not blaming the government for intentionally doing this. I am saying that they have a learning gap that they chose not to engage properly. And they've missed an opportunity to close a gap for black market. When you do not understand a product that, that you're trying to keep away from a kid, like Google how to make e-liquid. Mm. You, you can Google it. It's yeah. super easy. So why wouldn't someone go out there who's already kind of, you know, in that nefarious kind of business model, go out there and take advantage of this major gap. And what will the government do? Like, okay. are they regulating the black market? All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about vaping with my guest, Maria Papayawanu, writes for vapors. Are you a vapor? Phone me and tell me what you think of vape taxes going up. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Are you concerned about youth vaping? Please let me know. I've got two teenage boys at home, and I've said to them, don't let me catch you vaping here, because I know some of their friends do it, and I know they're not, which is good. I worry about this stuff. Let me know if you're a parent, if you're concerned about kids vaping, okay? Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your calls. Leo in Sydney. Hi, Leo. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I think... The reason that vaping is so popular is because of the the look of the industrial smokestack. It makes you look like an industrial smokestack. Um, if it didn't have that industrial smokestack look, it probably wouldn't be as popular. But on the downside, you know, we still don't know what the long-term effects are of vaping. And, yeah. you know, it, with our government here, we're not going to get very far with that to, because, let's face it, we're still the only province in Canada that thinks it's okay for our drugstores to sell cigarettes. So we're a long ways from doing anything about vaping. Okay, Leo, thank you for the call. Well, Maria, what about the long-term health impacts of vaping? Is that still sort of jury out on that? Um, we have 20 years of studies right now. And when you look at organizations like Public Health England, when they do um, risk analysis, it is 95% less risk than smoking. Health Canada does also agree that people who smoke, vaping is a safer option. And yeah. I think what we need to do is look at this as a relative risk. We need, like, you know, I want, I want everybody that is listening to understand, I am not here to get kids vaping. It, it, yeah. it doesn't make me feel good. I, you know, we don't need more addiction in this world. We need um, a world free of substance in our lives. I know that won't happen. I'm a little bit ideological. When we look at people who are living in their addictions, we need to find ways to encourage them to, to have safer alternatives and make it available to adults. 
Yeah, so the, interesting. You know, you're you're looking at Public Health England. Public Health England is also in the 1960s told people not to smoke. And you fast forward to 2013, they're the first public health organization to come out and say vaping is an a 95% safer than smoking. Let's go to Sean on the line, calling from the Fraser Valley. Hi, Sean, go ahead. Hi, good morning. I uh, just wanted to share a couple of perspectives. I'd like to preface this with the fact that I did actually use uh, vaping as a means to uh, supplement patches to get off of smoking a cigarette. And I was actually um, quite a uh, positive view on vaping until uh, my teenage daughter um, got involved with vaping and most of her friends as well. And the amount of nicotine in this product is insane. The kids are hooked on it really, really quickly. And as far as it being uh, used for helping people get off nicotine, I, I think the brand or the, what I had was called Canadian Tobacco. And all this stuff is this blueberry swirl and bubblegum flavored vape juice. Is solely marketed or geared towards kids, and they get hooked on this garbage so quickly. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It'd be better off having people smoking cigarettes, and that's all that I had to say. Well, I don't know about better off smoking cigarettes, but you know, the, the government here has brought in restrictions on the amount of the concentration of nicotine in the juice. Is that Maria? Like, do have most provinces done that? Have they brought in caps or limits on the amount of nicotine? BC with e-substance, uh, it kind of came in at the exact time as the federal. So 20 milligrams of nicotine is the highest concentration that anyone in Canada can access. Yeah. And here's the thing is that I understand and like, and I hear Sean and congratulations, Sean, for quitting smoking. I want to just commend you on that. And yeah. the fact that you found a way to do it using two different tools. I'm happy that you had that available to you. I am sorry that your kids um, have reached out and access vaping products. And I think what we need to do is have more conversations about the access of them. Yeah. And I understand we're talking about flavors too, and that is a very temperamental, but we are not allowed to call anything legally in Canada. You cannot describe the flavor of what is inside the e-liquid on the outside of the bottle. And also, I believe in BC, kids aren't allowed in uh, vape shops there, right. if I'm not mistaken. No, that's true. No, there so, are strict strict age limits there. Let's squeeze in one more call here. Gary in Surrey. Hi, Gary. Go ahead. Hi there. Um, good topic, Mike. Listen, I, the one thing I think that your, your guest is missing, and I don't hear her say it much in the proper context, uh, vaping is addictive. Let's not fool ourselves. <clears throat> it's as addictive as cigarettes. I know I was not a vapor, not a vapor, but I have people very, very close to me. One had tremendous issues quitting, finally did. The other is still trying to quit. And yeah. the money he's now spending on vaping is the equivalent to him smoking a deck of cigarettes a day. No difference. To, okay. me, to me, this whole argument is kind of ridiculous okay i'll stop drinking hard alcohol and just go to beer well forget it you're still on alcohol i think it's okay it's, it's silly and it's ridiculous thank you gary for the call maria you got 30 seconds here to respond 
Gary, 48,000 people died from smoking those darts last year in Canada. At the end of the day, 100 people are going to die from tobacco-related illness. Vaping is 95% safer than smoking cigarettes. We need to find balance, and we need to stop shaming people because of their addiction. And I get it, and I hear that in your voice. Maria, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Mike. You have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.